In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Heavenly King, Comforter of the Spirit of Truth, who art of our present, fillest all things, treasure blessings, and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O Good One. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, our Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen. So, um, today, the lecture three is going to be more basically um, apologetics than it is um, anything else. The, it's titled The Purifying Fire, so we're going to go through um, the Latin doctrine of purgatory and the orthodox understanding of what the purifying fire is and how that relates to the soul after death and an orthodox understanding of, um, of the Latin dogma of, purif- uh, of, the, of purgatory as well. So we'll start first just a little bit um, of history of what this council was about. It was held, it started on April 9th in 1438. And basically it was a council that was called um, mainly to ask for, ask um, the West for some protection against uh, for, for Constantinople that had been besieged on all sides by the Turks. They knew their end was coming um, soon. They were fearful. And so the emperor, John Paleologus, he um, called for this council to happen so the Latin church would help um, and that they would receive military aid, especially from the, from the Venetian kings. So um, they met on April 9th in 1438. Uh, the discussions were on various topics, basically to draw a unity between um, Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy. And um, they talked about a various, various things. The first thing wa- was um, the topic of the purifying fire, of the concept of purgatory, was the first thing that came up that they were going to talk about together. And um, going on uh, this whole thing, at first the Orthodox thought they believed the same exact thing, um, as the West, but it became very evident that there was a, a drastic, drastic um, difference in um, epistemology and how we understand the soul after death and what happens to the soul after death. And so there was a first, the, there was two things that uh, really came about in the first and beginning discussions was that first that there was this fire of pur- purgatory um, and so, the, so they were talking about two fires. The West was talking about two fires, a, a purgatorial fire that happens right after um, death, and then also the fire that happens in, in hell after the second coming, right? So there was two things that came about, and we'll talk about kind of the surprise um, to the Orthodox when these two things were brought up and their refutation, how this whole, this whole thing played out. But... The Orthodox were very um, patient in hearing the, all the arguments from the West. They actually heard the arguments at first, and they asked for the arguments to be written down so they can kind of go through and slowly decipher them. Um, some of this was done with wisdom. Um, some of it was done because the Orthodox were kind of buying time until the Venetian kings would give their answer um, for protection for the empire. And so... There's kind of this, um, 
there's there's kind of this prevailing mindset that they wanted to exert the faith and be faithful to the doctrines of the church, but at the same time, the emperor didn't want to lose the kingdom. And so during this whole time in Florence, they're teetering back and forth on being very bold. And at first, the emperor tells St. Mark of Ephesus, who's kind of the protagonist for the Orthodox um, in this, uh, in this um, so-called council, um, to be very, vo- very bold, you know, in his statements. And later, they start to kind of retract those a little bit, and other hierarchs are called in to talk um, that try to lay like a more common ground, and they try to play the common ground um, thing and didn't end up working at the end, which we'll talk about. But the whole pervading uh, mindset of this council was to seek some kind of reconciliation in order for mostly um, political protection for the empire. And um, it was a disaster, absolutely a disaster. So the Orthodox protagonist is St. Mark of Ephesus. So the emperor asked him at first to draft his um, teaching on life after death in response to this doctrine of purgatory. And because of his boldness, another bishop was asked as well, um, Basarion, who was um, the bishop of Nicaea, and he was Mark of Ephesus's pupil, when they, or not pupil, but um, his um, classmate when they were in school together. And Basarion had kind of more of a uh, common ground. He wanted to, uh, to, to form some kind of common ground with this doctrine of purgatory. St. Mark was very bold in his statements for the Orthodox teaching. And so he, um, so the emperor basically took, wanted Basarion to speak instead of St. Mark to speak. And so the, um, the, the letters that were drafted were, were taken, Basarion's um, letters were drafted and then they tried to, then they plugged some of St. Mark's teachings into them to try to kind of like make a common ground between the two hierarchs and then a common ground um, with the Latins at this um, so-called council. And so it was all kind of, you know, watery, the way things um, took place. So St. Mark, um, uh, he listened to all the references in scripture and patristic writings the Latins gave to kind of support their idea of, of purgatory, and he refuted them all in a series of homilies and teachings. We'll go over uh, some, of his, um, some of his teachings and his refutations, but they're really not enough. I mean, if you really want to get into it and understand this topic from an orthodox uh, perspective in, in a deep way, his uh, homilies are translated. Um, anyone can read them, either in The Soul After Death, in this book, Life After Death, so, um, just basically parts of it are translated. In Father Seraphim's Soul After Death, um, a few of the homilies are translated um, almost in their entirety, so you can read those, and, and you can look them up online as well. But basically, the saint, um, he was the only one that refused to sign the documents um, to basically concede um, to the Latin teaching and tried to mix it with orthodoxy. He was the only one to um, not put his name down and he was punished for it. And so he's been named, you know, the, one of the pillars of orthodoxy as well as the conscience of the church is kind of his nickname, St. Mark, the con- conscience of the church. So <clears throat> a false union was, was made at first so various documents were watered down for the sake of military aid, 
and were signed by the Orthodox delegation during this time. St. Mark and some of his disciples tried to escape um, Ferrara and then tried to escape Florence, but they could not. There was a lot of tension that rose in the city. In the end, it, it was a shame for, um, for the Orthodox and the faithful denounced the compromising hierarchs. So when the, this is a perfect example of how the church um, works to check, to check itself. The laity checks the hierarchs, the, the monastics check the hierarchs, the hierarchs check the laity, all these kinds of things work together in, um, or in, or in an organic way. And so when they came and pulled into the docks of Constantinople after this, the laity denounced all of the hierarchs that signed the, the documents and uh, protested against this idea of purgatory. And they hailed St. Mark as a saint. When he came onto the docks, it said in the documents, in the history, that all of them fell down before him and honored him as a saint in that minute and, the, and a confessor for the, for the faith. He was later to be brought before the trial of the Pope. Um, the Pope asked to summon St. Mark uh, several times at first, the emperor did not want to send St. Mark because he did not want any harm to come to him. But when the pope promised that no harm would come to him, St. Mark was put before the pope and asked numerous questions. St. Mark gave the orthodox understanding um, in the papal court, and he told him that he, has, that he has made nothing up. This is all according to the fathers, and that he would not... Um, proclaim any other doctrine than what is the church's doctrine. So he was a great, um, great example and a confessor for the faith. He was later imprisoned because of these actions and um, suffered greatly for, for the faith itself. After the fall of Constantinople, he helped come back to um, the city and reestablish a monastery that he was at at first before this so-called council. But nevertheless, St. Mark is the, the great protagonist in this whole thing. And then Constantinople, in the end, was besieged and didn't have any military help from the Venetians. It was besieged in the end, and many of the holy people that lived and fled from Constantinople at that time attributed the fall of Constantinople to this um, false union that the so-called Orthodox hierarchs made with the Roman Catholic Church at the time. So this is where the... This is where the Orthodox first kind of uncovered and saw the great divide between the East and the West. And in our, um, in our interest tonight, we'll mostly talk about this divide in um, the concept of purgatory, the purifying fire. So at the outside of the council, like I said, they, they talked about this um, idea first. I don't know if they talked about this idea first because they thought that it was going to be a unifying idea or they just wanted to combat the Orthodox understanding right from the outset. But nevertheless, this is the first thing that the Latins uh, brought forth. Cardinal Julian at Ferrara, this is, uh, he said, There is a purifying fire, that is to say, in the present age. The souls of sinners having pardonable sins are purified by fire. With the cooperation of the church through the priest's prayers, and furthermore, they are released from punishments through liturgies and almsgiving. Right? And so the Orthodox, in, under, in analyzing this and hearing this, 
They basically came um, to three different things that the Latins end up confessing in different categories um, according to this teaching and, and, and this saying. Basically, one is that there's saints whose souls are in heaven. The second is that there's a place where sinners and unrepentant go who are in Hades. And the third is an intermediate place where souls um, that possess, unfor- uh, possess forgivable sins, excuse me, forgivable sins pass through a purifying fire because they owe a debt of penance, right? So these are the three categories of places that were confessed by the Latins in their, um, in their uh, presentation about um, the purifying fire or purgatory. And so the, 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 the third category here was the big surprise for the Orthodox. And St. Mark of Ephesus even said, I thought that we had believed the same thing up until now, right? So St. Mark went to the council with very good intentions um, in that he thought that in some ways the Latin church believed a lot of the same things as us and this unity wouldn't be a big deal. Um, But during this, when he's hearing these teachings come forth, um, he realizes the great divide that has happened between the East and the West. And so... This third um, category becomes a, a big surprise to them because it is something that the, that the East had never um, confessed or never taught, that there's this third intermediate place where souls um, go, right? We, we believe that there's these two places, that souls are either in heaven or in Hades, but this third place is, was a bit of surprise to, to the fathers. So um, to theologically complicate things, and uh, revealing a greater divide between the two, the two, uh, two parties. Uh, three views became, came as a consequence to this last category that surprised them, right? Three categories um, that are, first, the Latins distinguished a purifying fire from the fire of hell that exists in the present age before the second coming. So they confess that there is a fire that is happening now to souls um, that is not... That is, that is not the fire that is after the second coming because it's in this age, right? So there is this fire that exists now, that souls experience now, and not after the second coming. So this is was a surprise to the fathers because this is not something that we confessed. Um, the river of fire is something that comes from um, the judgment seat of the second coming. That is when hell is created. That's what we, or not created, but that's when hell becomes this noetic place that souls um, are sent to, right? So, um, as we talked about in the last uh, lecture, so this fire, this this created fire, um, is is something that is uh, a drastic difference. Also, um, like uh, also, I just I just uh, let it let the cat out of the bag. Um, the second is that 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 this fire is created, right? This fire is created. That's the second big difference. Um, like we said uh, last week, what souls experience in Hades and what they, will, what they will experience in hell is God's presence, which becomes a fire, a caustic fire, because of the soul's disposition towards him. Here we have the Latins um, confessing a created fire that purifies souls something drastically different than any of the fathers had talked about ever, right? So this catches them off guard as well. 
and that thirdly, souls are required to undergo pain and purification after this life. So these are the three huge things that, that uh, make the chasm between the Eastern Fathers and the Western um, hierarchs as, uh, you know, it makes the chasm very evident that we, we are talking about and we are confessing two different, um, two drastically different um, beliefs in life after death and what souls experience after death. So broader theological differ- differences begin to emerge um, as they, as they uh, continue talking about this subject. And meetings became very hostile. And like I said, St. Mark and his disciples um, tried to flee uh, numerous times um, from these places because they, 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 they were fearing for their lives that something um, very disastrous might happen. So it says in, um, some, from some of these Greek historians that were there at the time that um, they say the, the Latins were very clever, is what they said, because when they went back to write um, their teachings down in order to give them to the Orthodox for them to be examined, they use a lot of Holy Scripture and they use a lot of fathers, and not just fathers from the West, but fathers particularly that are venerated in the East. And so they wanted to bring and present um, all of these quotes from Holy Scripture and from the Fathers in order to support their idea of, of, of purgatory. And the main scripture that is used, um, especially in this so-called council, was um, from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And um, it, it says here, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver, precious stones, and wood. St. Paul says that the foundation of Christ is Christ himself, right? And that we're given, you know, we're supposed to build on this foundation that Paul has laid for his churches. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will, be, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right, so this is the big um, scripture that is used, among other ones, but I picked this one because it seems to be uh, the main focal point in some of the, the arguments during, during Ferrar Florence. And... St. Mark is, is very, you know, he's taken aback that they would use these, these scriptures. And so what does he do? He, like any um, good Orthodox person, he goes to the commentaries of St. John Chrysostom, right? Because St. John Chrysostom, it is said that Paul is the mouthpiece of Christ and St. John Chrysostom is the mouthpiece of Paul, right? And there's this whole tradition um, in the church that St. Paul appeared was, was seen that it appeared to, um, to St. John and whispered in his ear as he was doing the commentaries of the epistles. And today, St. John Chrysostom's skull, his ear is incorrupt. The rest of his skull um, is, it doesn't, it isn't incorrupt, but his ear is incorrupt. And this is the ear that St. Paul spoke in as he was doing the commentary on the Gospels. 
So any of the fathers, especially if you read, even if you read commentary that are done by, by um, modern fathers, they always um, quote and they always, or they paraphrase what St. John Chrysostom said about these um, scriptures. So St. Mark, like any pious Orthodox Christian, goes back to St. John Chrysostom. He also uses St. Basil the Great, and he starts to decipher the passages that the Latins put up um, to uphold their doctrine of purgatory um, through the writings of these early fathers. And in order to explain why this scripture and St. Paul wasn't talking about purgatory here, um, he quotes St. John back to them, and he says St. John here is talking about the testings and the trials that happen in this life. Not in the next life, but in this life. And that at the end, when he's saying, though he himself would be saved, but only through fire, St. John Chrysostom and other fathers say that this doesn't mean that he will receive salvation, this saved. But St. John says that his personhood will not be destroyed. That is, he himself will not go into oblivion, his personhood will still remain, but he will be cast into fire, right? So at the second coming. So Chrysostom says, salvation means only that, one, that which one does will not perish with one's work, that one is left when one's work perishes, right? So he's talking about how the, the things in this life, if we build with gold and silver and precious stones, they will exist in the next life. But they're tried in this life by our trials and our own struggles and everything like that. If we continue to build with wood and hay and straw, they will not pass with us to the next life. And our personhood will not be destroyed, but we will experience um, torment by fire. Right, so this is, so to so St. Mark, when he's going through these scriptures that are, that are laid out to him, there is no evidence at all of this third category, this third place of a place where souls go, a created fire that souls have to go through in order to be purged of some kind of sin that they have. They haven't confessed or they haven't um, um, completely um, done penance for, right? So the, the Latins also used the patristic writings that were refuted, and they was, these were refuted by St. Mark very easily. And they're they refuted in the following ways. First, he said that all the writings of the fathers were brought for, that were brought forth to, to them were done under the assumption that divine justice does not leave anything unpunished. That is, God's justice has to punish everything that is done against his law. That there's nothing that gets uh, away from him. You know? um, everything has to be met with a certain sentence. And if the sentence isn't carried out, whatever is left over and remained needs to be punished. And so many of the writings they bring forth from the fathers, they do it with this, um, this kind of um, theology, this really twisted theology um, in mind. And all the interpretations were done in a spirit of scholastic theology. And remember when we talked, when we did the beginnings of the Orthodox Survival Course, we talked about how, um, how disastrous scholastic theology was in the West and what it did um, to the tradition of, um, 
of neptic theology and other, th other or the orthodox theology, and we'll talk about that in the end of this lecture, um, what it did and how it rent um, the West away from theology as experience of God, and it put it, put it into um, theology that is experienced more through, um, revolved around man's own, um, um, I guess, experience, if you will. So this, this is all done through scholastic theology, the way that these quotes are cherry-picked from the fathers. And it also became clear that the West had lost the phronema of the church, that is, the mindset of the church. And the Latins were unable to understand the patristic passages clearly, especially regarding the orthodox understanding of the release from Hades and hell. Right? So they had a totally different understanding than the orthodox do of what it means to re be released from Hades and hell. And St. Mark puts um, the orthodox understanding out there in three different points. He says that first, we are released from Hades and hell because of the remission of sins at the time of baptism. This is the first thing. The second is that through bap uh, baptism through conversion. That means we're baptized, we receive the grace of God, we're chrismated, we're sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now in our life, we have, to, we have to participate in baptism through conversion, which means mourning, repentance, tears, prayers, right? So it's our whole struggle in this life in order to, um, to attain repentance. This is the, th the second way how we escape from any, um, um, any, uh, any suffering in the next life, right? And the third is after death. And we do this after death only through the prayers and the deeds of the church. We have no um, second chance after we depart from the body to start repentance and purification. The only change that takes place with one, especially if one is in Hades, the only way that he can be transferred to, um, to paradise, as we talked about last week, is through the prayers of the church and the offerings at the liturgy and all of these things. These are the only way that states can change. And we'll talk a little bit more about this um, as we go on in the lecture. But the con this concept, this kind of more simple concept, that there's only two places that a soul goes after death. He goes to uh, paradise or he goes to Hades. And those are the two things that we believe. Now, is there any change between those two places? Can a soul go from Hades into paradise? Yes, but only through the prayers of the church. There is no third place that God has created with this fire to purify and punish sins that haven't been fully repented of um, in this life. That's not something that we believe. Nor do we make offertory prayers in the church in order that a person would be relieved of a certain punishment in this purgatory. The, re the reason why we offer prayers in the church is so that um, we pass on blessedness in the prayers to souls that are in the next life. We do this with Koliva, even with saints. On great feasts of saints, we can offer Koliva for the saints. Do we do it because we think that they need some more blessedness in the next life? We already know that they're blessed. We do it because our prayers and our blessings pass on. 
to that person. And it's the same thing we offer koliva for our departed loved ones, wherever they are. If they're in paradise or if they're in Hades, they, re they receive the prayers and the blessings of the church. And we'll talk about how grace can, um, and purification can happen and, and a, a soul can see more of God through the prayers and the mercies that the church extends by these uh, sacrifices that it makes on behalf of the departed. And so that there, there is no need, you know, for a third place to exist where souls are purified in order to um, see God. And there's uh, a lot of other um, very dangerous things that come about because of this. So a little bit of going through the patristic teaching of St. Mark. This is my favorite icon of St. Mark. He's standing bold, so bold here, and the Pope's crown has been tossed off of his head, and he's on the floor with his hands to his ears because he can't hear the truth anymore. So St. Mark, he puts forth these reasons for rejecting the notion of purgatory. And like I said, this is just giving St. Mark a half of a page here is really doing um, a disservice to him. But because of our, our, our time, we have to, um, you know, put them in a little concise uh, list. But if you want to um, read more, like I said, of the teachings of this wonderful father, they're available for you. So he says, the love of God and the longing for divine life purifies people itself and makes them godlike. This continues after death. And thus, there is no need for a purifying fire. So God's love itself is purification. There's no need for a purifying fire. He says, little evil in a righteous person causes them to experience the pleasure of paradise differently. And likewise, the little good in the sinner causes them to experience punishment differently. This goes all back to what we said last week. The vision of God is granted to everybody, all men alike. God is not um, absent in Hades or hell. And so everybody is granted a vision of God. But seeing him and participating in him depends on the degree of purification we have reached in this life. So likewise, the experience of God is determined on, by the condition of the soul. Right? So what he's saying here is that there is no need for, for, for a purifying fire. If, one go, if, a, if a righteous person goes to paradise but retains some of his sins in this life, that he experiences and sees God differently. This is why in the writings of the fathers, when saints are, are carried, up in, carried up into heaven to see heaven or something like this, um, sometimes they will see, you know, they, they will talk about how St. Anthony is next to the throne of God or... Gregory Palamas is next to the throne of God, all these kinds of things. There's almost like this hierarchy sometimes that is portrayed iconically um, in heaven, uh, in the ranks of the saints. And the reason why that is, is to mirror and reflect the teaching of the church that souls experience God differently in the afterlife. If we are righteous, but we had sins that we didn't repent of, that we experience God according to the condition of our soul. If, and likewise, as St. Mark says, if an evil person has a little bit of good in them, then they experience the fire differently than someone who has all evil about them, 
right? So it all depends on the person and the condition of their soul. So there's no need for this third place to be had that souls need to be purified in order to come into the presence of God. He also quotes from St. Gregory the Theologian quite extensively, and he talks about how him and other fathers say that there is no purification in the next life, but it is preferable for us to purify ourselves here and now. And what he means by this is that we cannot do any acts in the next life to purify ourselves. The only purification that comes to a soul in the next life are the prayers that are offered up by the faithful in the church. That is the only way that a soul uh, changes in its disposition towards seeing God or experiencing some relief in punishment. We talked about, um, maybe, maybe it wasn't, maybe I didn't talk to everybody about it, but maybe after last week when we were working on the church until wee hours in the night, um, we're talking about the vision of St. Macarius the Great and um, the pagan skull in the desert as he was walking started to speak to him and tell him of the torments in Hades that he was experiencing and what happens in the afterlife. And St. Saint, Saint, uh, Macarius asks him, um, do the prayers of the church help? And he said that when the, the church prays for them, that they can start to see the vision of the face of the person next to them, and it brings them comfort, right? Just to see the face of somebody next to them brings them comfort, because otherwise they are secluded and alone and away from everybody, right? So, um, so even for the pagan priests and, and, and everything, right? Even just these small little prayers that are prayed um, in the church on behalf of souls experience, even if they are in Hades, experience relief, relief, right? So there is no need for this third state to be had, right? The church already possesses the power to um, grant relief to souls and also to grant souls more of our participation in um, the seeing of God in the next life. He also uses the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man and says there is no third place that exists. So where does this come from? He also says that it's unbalanced and improper to talk about the purification of the soul through a created fire when the body is not present. That is, there are souls, there are, there are sins of the flesh. So why does the flesh not go through such a fire? Why is it the soul only is purified through this fire, right? We talked about how, how important it is in the Orthodox Church to have no um, dualism between the, 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 the spirit or the, the soul and the body, right? That, that we do not say the body is some prison that keeps us in, um, that it is not what makes us um, a bunch of sinners, but that we are cre creatures that possess both a body and a soul. So if we have... Um, done so much wrong in this life and need purifying, a purifying fire to go through, why doesn't the body also have to go through this as well, since it will be brought up um, before uh, to us in the second coming? Right? Why doesn't the body go through it, he says. And also, he says, um, he, said, he, he, he poses the question, he says, which is it, redemption or punishment? Purgatory confesses both. 
that redemption is only had through punishment. And St. Mark says that it can only be one or the other. They cannot coexist together. Either God is granting mercy or he is granting punishment. Which, which one do you want to have, you know, is what he says. He also says that Holy Scripture, the patristic witness of the church, and the prayers of the church do not hand down to us a third intermediate state where souls pass through a created fire in order to be purged of their sins. Why would God create some kind of fire that would have to punish us in order for us to come into his presence? Um, it's completely absurd and it doesn't exist in any of the, any of the services of the church. And he says, the only, fire that is eter- the only fire is the eternal fire, and it is uncreated. That is the fire after the second coming, and it is uncreated. And he said, it is spoken of allegorically by the fathers, since it does not exist in the states we know according to the senses. That is, when we read about the fire in Scripture, when we read the fire in the fathers, they're using it allegorically because we know this place is uncreated, that, these, that it's not necessarily flames or worms or outer darkness and all these kinds of things, but it is the only, thing that, the only things that we can use in order to describe what is happening because it's not happening according to the senses, but it's the only things that we can use to have our human minds grasp um, what happens to souls in, in, in the next life. So this whole uh, literal fire being created... <coughs> This whole literal fire being created for souls to be, um, you know, kind of uh, put through in order to be purged of their sins is something that is completely baseless in, in Scripture and, and the writings of the fathers. So I, just to give you a, a really good understanding of where we stand with purgatory, this is from um, a council in 1722 in Constantinople, and it was an encyclical um, of the Church of Antioch, and it referred to this purifying fire. And it says, it says, while the Latins affirm that there are three places to which the souls of the dead go, we, the godly, following the truth and turning away from such innovations, confess and accept two places for the souls of the dead, paradise and Hades. For the righteous and sinners, as the Holy Scripture teaches us, we do not accept a third place, purgatory, by any means, since neither Scripture nor the Holy Fathers have taught us any such thing. However, we believe that these two places have many different abodes. None of the teachers of the Church have handed down to us or taught us such a thing as purgatory, but they all speak of one single place of punishment, which is Hades, just as they teach about the luminous and bright place, paradise. But both places also have different abodes, as we said. Since the souls of the holy and righteous go indisputably to paradise, and those of sinners go to Hades, of whom the ungodly and those who have sinned unforgivably are punished forever, and those who have offended forgivably and moderately hope to gain freedom through the unspeakable mercy of God. So you see here, those who have um, offended forgivably, right? That haven't um, created, uh, who haven't sinned in an unforgivable way, in a mortal way, sinned and sinned unto death, right? Sinned forgivably are um, are mod- they 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 exist 
in hope to gain freedom through unseekable mercy of God. For this reason, on behalf of such souls, that is, of the moderately and forgivable sinful, the Church offers prayers, supplications, liturgies, as well as memorial services and almsgiving, that these souls may receive benefit and comfort. Thus, when the Church prays for the souls of those who have fallen asleep, we hope that there will be forgiveness for them from God, not through fire and purgatory, but through divine love for mankind in a way known to the infinite goodness of God. So this is what we believe, that there are two places, and that if a soul is to be purified and pass from Hades into paradise, it is only done through the divine love of God, through the petitions of the church with love. It is not done as punishment in order that a soul could be purified through a created place. Right? So it drastically, under, it drastically um, um, changes the reality of who God is. God is, extends himself to every soul in the next life. Everybody will see God, but only those who have purified them, themselves in this life will receive him as illumination. Those who do not purify themselves receive him as caustic fire, right? And one only passes from one state to the next, to the other, if their sins are pardonable and if the church in love prays for them. There is no third place where they are thrown to, to suffer um, until their, their sins are purged from them, right? So St. Mark considers these innovations presented by the Latins as really unnecessary. There is no need for it. It's, taking, it's trying to take passage of Scripture literally and trying to take writings from the fathers very literally. But he says that it stems from the loss and rejection of hesychistic theology and the adoption of um, anthropocentric scholastic theology or a theology that is centered, centered around the senses of mankind. And why St. Mark um, says this is because St. Mark was a, uh, he was a Palamite. He was a, he, he, he followed the traditions of St. Um, Gregory Palamas, who talked about God as purifying fire in this life. And, um, and we'll get into a little bit of this uh, theology, but the West rejected this theology. Um, there was a monk, Barlam, who came to Athos and saw that these monks who were um, experiencing the uncreated light of God, um, and he went into refutation against them. And the West rejected um, the Polemite theology and thus went into grave error. And we'll, we'll talk about why um, it's such a grave error. So we have to talk a little bit about the source of purgatory. Where does this teaching come from? Why is the Latin Church? Why is the Why is the Latin Church coming up with this in Ferrara, Florence? And why are the Orthodox so incredibly surprised that there is this drastic difference between the East and the West that they never um, imagined was um, uh, was existing? Right? So Metropolitan Hierotheos he says that it's important to point out that this doctrine and others appear as an organic part of the theology of the West. That is, it is birthed from the whole atmosphere that developed among the Latins. 
And therefore, it is important to examine a few of these points. And the reason why this is very important is because theology is not gained, you know, through reading books and, um, and interpreting scripture um, on our own and all these kinds of things. You know, even secular scientists and philosophers and um, many other people from different fields do this. Right? They read the fathers, they read the scriptures, but have no knowledge of actually who God is. And so this is not how we discover theology. Theology in the church has always been something that is experienced empirically with um, purification and being in the presence of God himself. The true theologian is one that prays, says the fathers. Right? So when the church, when the West um, divorced itself from the church, it divorced itself from genuine spirituality. And so this is only just a product of its rebellion against the church of the East. It is only a product of the rebellion. Um, that they lose a genuine spirituality. And thus, like St. Mark says, when they're trying to interpret all of these things, they're doing it um, from, a, from a, a totally wrong starting point. Totally wrong starting point. So firstly, the first thing to examine of why this had come about is this was brought about through the lack of what is called in the church neptic theology found in the hesychistic tradition. This is the teaching that the purity of the heart, illumination of the noose, and the vision of God through ascetical practice and recitation of the Jesus prayer. All right? Neptic theology and the Neptic fathers are those that practice silence, stillness. This was um, the great teaching of great Gregory Palamas that he proclaimed um, and, and refuted the, um, the, the monk Barlam in the West with. And it, is, it has formed the way in which Orthodox carry on their spiritual life and how they interpret the scriptures and all these other kinds of things. This is not something that Palamas invented. This is something that was passed down to Palamas by all of the fathers before him and something that he just um, was able to put together and to proclaim. It's just like um, when we talk about icons in the church. There is not a lot of... Um, evidence that icons really existed too much in the way that they did before the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean the Seventh Ecumenical Council made up icons. They always had existed, but it came a time in the church for these things to be pronounced and put together um, in, a, in a more concise theology in order for the entire church um, to defend herself, but also to proclaim to the faithful its deep um, understanding of God in the spiritual life. So it's the same thing with St. Gregory Palamas. It's not like he made anything up, but he was able to expound on these um, things that were, were um, passed down to him and also that he experienced. So in the Orthodox understanding, we speak of the energy of God as purifying fire which purifies man. The grace of God that one acquires becomes purifying, illumining, and deifying. So Metropolitan Hierotheos, he quotes a few different quotes from St. John of the Ladder in this book. But one of them is, he says that 
St. John the Latter, in expressing the whole Neptic tradition on this subject, says that we experience the grace of God first as a fire, a flame, then as a light. The supra-celestial fire, when it comes to dwell in the heart, sets some people ablaze because of the insufficiency of their purification and illumines others according to the degree of their purification. And he goes on saying, The uncreated grace of God is a fire which burns up the passions, purifies the heart, and therefore is called purifying grace. And this takes place during man's struggle to be cured. So when we talk about um, the purifying fire in this concept of the neptic, the neptic tradition of the church, we are talking about a, a purifying fire that occurs within our inner life in our inner man, with our struggle in order to cure ourselves. This is not only something that happens during prayer, and it's supposed to be tried to attain, be attained during prayer, but it is also what happens to us um, in the sacraments of the church, or at least it's supposed to happen to us in the sacraments of the church. When we come forward to partake of Holy Communion, we are supposed to leave as totally transfigured and illumined people. Our life is supposed to change drastically. Unfortunately, we all do not have the, um, the great grace as many of the early saints of the church did in order to, to um, you know, attain this feat. But nevertheless, we try. And we pray that God would illumine us and give us strength to um, become transformed people. We talk about the, the Holy Chalice as fire. We talk about um, the, the, tong, the, the, the uh, spoon itself in Greek. If you, know, if you go to an a ecclesiastical shop and everything is in Greek on the website, where you'll find to buy a spoon is actually under the word tongs. And the reason why it's called tongs is because it is talking about the tongs that held the coal that was extended to the prophet, right? So this is a purifying fire, a purifying fire. So the, the, in taking these, um, these concepts um, very literally, the, the lands came up with their own concept of a purifying fire, something that happens in the next life. But we talk about it as happening in this life through an intense spiritual inner life. Right? So let me just read for you the Thanksgiving, one of the Thanksgiving prayers um, after Holy Communion by St. Simeon the Translator. It says, O thou who willingly dost give thy flesh to me as food, thou art a fire consuming the unworthy. Consume me not, O my Creator, but rather pass through all my body parts, into my joints, my reins, my heart. Burn thou the thorns of my transgressions, right? Burn the thorns of my transgressions. Cleanse my soul and hallow my thoughts. Make firm my knees and my bones likewise. Enlighten as one of my five senses. Establish me wholly in thy fear. Ever shelter me, guard and keep me from every soul corrupting deed and word. Cleanse me, purify me, and control me. Adorn me, and teach me, and enlighten me. Show me to be a dwelling place of thy spirit, and in no wise a dwelling place of sin. That from me thy habitation 
through the entrance of thy holy communion, every deed and every passion may, be, may flee as from fire. As intercessors, I bring to thee all the sanctified, both the leaders and the bodiless powers, thy forerunner, thy wise apostles, and besides thee, thine immaculate and pure mother. Do thou receive their prayers, O Christ, O my Christ, who art compassionate. Make thy servant to be a child of light. For thou alone, O good one, art the sanctification and splendor of our souls, and unto thee as God and Master, by day, day by day we all ascribe glory. Right? So this prayer of St. Simeon, the translator, is talking about communion being a fire, that God coming into us as a fire to pass through every innermost part of us to drive out and purify and scorch up all of our passions, that everything that is bad and habitual in us that leads us to sin would flee from us as fire, right? In order that, so that these things would be burned, in order that we would be children of light, right? In order we'd be children of light. So this is mirroring what happens in the afterlife. We purify ourselves here so that in the afterlife we would be children of light, experience God as light and illumination and not caustic fire. So the purification by fire happens in this life through ascetical practice, through an inner life, through a deep inner life. The West lost this very short after the schism. And therefore, because it has no way to really talk about the purification through this deep ascetical inner life, the neptic theology of the church, which was rejected by the West um, through this whole debate through th between Barlaam and Palamas. It has no way to talk about this as, as we as Orthodox do, right? So this, is, this, this was one of the very, very big differences that led to the uh, development of this doctrine in the West, this uh, so-called pur purgatory. Um, secondly, the appearance of purgatory was brought about through the erroneous identification of essence and energies of God. This is a very big thing. This is a very big thing. That was talked about by Palamas and um, something that is completely erroneous in the West and has led to various, various um, heresies that developed in the church. They identify the essence and the energies of God as, as, as one thing. So the Orthodox, we, in our theology, we understand that there is a distinction between God's essence and God's energies. Some of the fathers have used this, kind of to put it in um, terms that we can understand better. Um, they use it as, for instance, um, the sun, right? The sun, we can never dwell within the sun. We would be totally consumed before we even get close to it, right? But we can participate in the sun's rays as people, right? We can experience its light, its warmth. We can use it for cultivation, all these kinds of things. Um, we, can, we can experience the sun. So the, the fathers will talk about the rays of the sun as the energies of God. We participate in these energies. But the essence of God is something that we will never even get close to understanding or knowing or even being in the presence of. We cannot. It is beyond um, our ability as created beings. Now, in the West, there is no distinction between these two things. And because 
God's essence is so incredible. There is a need for a person to be purified to its furthest, uh, to a soul's uh, needs to be purified to, its, to the furthest degree to even come into the um, essence of God. And they talk about, even in this uh, council, they talk about those who are purified from pur- purgatory come and dwell with, uh, before the essence of God, which is not something that we confess. We confess that we will participate forever in the energies of God, not his essence. We will never know it, which is part of the beauty and the unfathomable depth of who God is. Right? But the problem that happens in conflating the two is, become, is that God becomes known as the actus purus, the pure energy. And so, his, uh, so anything that participates in salvation has to participate, it, participate um, in it through a creative, created energy by God. So beings do not participate in salvation through God's direct energy. They only participate in salvation through created energies of God. That is like the difference between participating in the actual rays of the sun and a light bulb, right? It still gives light and warmth, but it is not the personhood of the sun. It is not what the sun is. It is not what the sun gives off. So this uh, creates a, a chasm between God and the world, right? God is so un- unfallible and untouchable in his essence, conflated with this energy, that he, has, that he creates energy for us to participate in. So that's why purgatory has to have this created fire, not uh, a fire that is the energy of God, but a created fire. So it distances God from, from humanity, from humanity. So man's participation in salvation is only by created means and not experience of the uncreated life. And so this uh, is totally different from our, our understanding of salvation because our understanding of salvation is identified through uncreated, deifying energy of God, the direct participation in the energy of God. And why these distinctions became so incredibly drawn apart is because the fathers under Gregory Palamas and the fathers on Athos and this long tradition of um, neptic theology and neptic prayer, these fathers were experiencing and saints have experienced the uncreated energy of God. That is, they become transfigured like Christ on Mount Tabor. They experience the uncreated light like the apostles experienced Christ on Tabor, right? And so the whole debate between Barlam, this monk, and Gregory Palamas was, are we actually participating in the actual energy of God or is this created light that God has created in order that we would experience some kind of grace because of it, right? So does it, is it something that is created by God and inspires us, and therefore we try to know him more? 
Or is it actually God's light that illumines us and sanctifies us and that we participate in? The fathers of the church have always maintained this light is participating in God himself. In the West, they uh, took the, to the idea that this light is created and therefore it inspires man to, to um, you know, uh, ascend towards God, but it is not, he does not participate in God himself right? in, in these kind of revelations. So I, I know that's may, maybe you know, really complex and you know, a whole lecture series can be dedicated to this topic itself, but it, it really, um, you know, all of the, the heresies and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, you know, division that we, ex, that we experience with, um, with the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, really stems from these two things, this, this um, understanding of the, um, um, the neptic tradition of the church and also the um, conflation between the essence and energies of God and how we participate in divine life and uncreated grace. So the third thing is that um, purgatory brings up a need for divine justice to be brought by God onto a sinner. Right? So just like St. John Chrysostom says, the church is not a courtroom. Um, this, is, uh, this becomes a, a big courtroom for souls. They have to go through a purifying fire in order for them to be able to come into the presence of God. So there's a, ju- there's a divine justice that has to be wielded by God in order for him to be uh, pleased that finally this person through his uh, suffering, is now purged of the sin, and now he can come into my glory. So uh, fifth, um, there's the political and economic situations that furthered the doctrine, right? So you have the collapse of um, different economic systems within the church that now, because of, um, uh, you know, the the need to continue to rebuild, uh, to build the church and and keep the, the, um, the papal throne, you know, nice and pretty, that uh, now you can buy indulgences for your family who are stuck in purgatory, purgatorial fire. And with this money and other things that you give, you can release them from some kind of torment within the purgatorial fire, right? So now the doctrine even furthers more into, um, you know, uh, more astray from, from what was discussed in Ferrara Florence because now you have all of this um, indulgences going on, this money that's going on, and it becomes very... And this is one of the main reasons why the Protestants broke away from the Roman Catholic Church is because of some of these um, really wacky things that started to happen, right? So now you... So now maybe God's... God, so God takes on another character, right? That he has to... Um, put these uh, souls through a purgatorial fire. But, you know, if you give money to his kingdom on earth, he'll uh, release a little bit of suffering from that soul. It's the courtroom, you know, you can, like, bail them out partially. Right. Say you have a 10-year sentence, you can buy off six months by doing X, Y, Z. And there's some, I don't know, not past on it, but apparently the saints of the Roman Church, you know, they become so full of grace, they have, like, extra grace. 
and so they, they don't have to get into heaven, but that extra belongs to the church, and the church goals it out as right. indulgences. And, and right. So for a small fee, we'll give you, you know, and so you do X, Y, and Z, you know, jump up, say this many prayers, and, and give this money, and here's your indulgence. Yeah, right. And, and, this day, and, the, and this brings up another... It, the money part, the, the prayer. To this day, you do these prayers, and the indulgence can apply. Yeah. And this brings up another thing, too, is that this whole concept of indulgences from the saints, you know, that the saints um, at some point grow, they get so much grace, they have an overabundance, and then the church can take that overabundant grace and, you know, hand it out, you know, kind of to people. Um, this, this, this takes on a, a whole a drastically different belief from what we believe in that even the saints now do not experience the fullness of paradise until they are joined again with their bodies at the second, resurre- at, at the second coming, the general resurrection, right? So we, we don't even believe the saints now experience the fullness of their grace, except for the Panagia, right? Because she, her, her son loves her so much that he took her body up, right? And, um, and you know, there's some Old Testament saints too but but uh nevertheless we don't grow we don't you know experience the the fullness of grace until after the second coming which is something that it seems like in Ferrara Florence they started to already confess that once you're out of this purgatorial fire that you have uh you now you're in the the supposed essence of God and and then you have then you then you grow to so much grace that you now you have too much of it and you have to you, the church can give it out to others, right? Becomes a very like transactional, um, you know, marketplace, you know, of souls. The easy way. <laughs> yeah, the easy. <laughs> so, uh, 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 lastly, um, the fathers say that uh, purgatory places doubt in the um, efficacy of the redemptive sacrifice of our Lord and His death on the cross. Right? There has to be something more paid. There has to be something more paid um, for souls. So this is the, um, hopefully I put it, put it together in a way that you can kind of understand um, the doctrine of purgatorial fire in the West and um, be able to, especially with our last lecture, be able to um, contrast it with an orthodox understanding of what happens after death. We only believe in two places. Um, that the souls of those um, who are in Hades um, with pardonable sins are, can, can be released from Hades um, because of the prayers of the church. There's no paying, there's no indulgences, there's no third place where God has created um, a fire in order to put souls through, you know? And that we do not even believe that God ever creates a fire for souls to participate in, but that it's His energies that become a fire, a caustic fire for those who are not prepared to come into his presence, right? So a totally different understanding. And, you know, in, in this light, if you examine the doctrines that developed um, in the West and in Protestantism, you start to understand and see the bad fruits of um, these different understandings of God, who God is. Because in, in the East, we have this God of love and mercy. 
And even when a soul passes into the next life, if he is unrighteous, he is still within the uh, presence of God, but receives him as a fire. It's according to the disposition of the soul and God's complete love and respect for man's free will. Right? And on the other hand, with these um, kind of transactional um, it's kind of transactional theology, talking about purgatory and everything, God becomes um, sort of this judge that a debt has to be paid to in order to come into his presence. And um, so he takes on a totally different uh, characteristic, you know, and this fact that we cannot participate in God at all, but only through things that he created for us to participate in, not his, per not his person himself, but through a created um, whether it be through this purgatory of fire that's created, whether it be through a light you know, that is created or a grace that is created, nevertheless, uh, God is distanced because of this um, distinction that was made uh, between Barlam and, and Palamas. So, um, any questions at all? Yes. What's the term neptic mean? Neptic basically means um, of silence. Right? It's a... It's a, it's a it's it's the theology of the of the of the fathers the hesychistic fathers those that practice silence inner stillness and watchfulness is what neptic means right so it's this whole idea of living an inner life and purifying ourselves you know deep within ourselves right and this is what god's purifying fire becomes this energy that they participate in whether that's through um, the Jesus prayer itself, whether it's through liturgy, or whether it's through actually experiences, experiencing God's illuminating uh, fire, like on Tabor, right? The light that illumines. So in this thing, when he's talking about, you know, St. John Climacus is talking about these monks that experience the uncreated light of God. Some of them experience it as, a, as, as an experience that burns away their passions, Others experience it as, as a joyful light because they were ready to receive it, right? And this is how uh, many of the fathers, even of modern day, talk about it. St. Joseph the Hesychist talks about it this way, and many of the uh, modern saints, St. Siloan, who experienced the uncreated light, would talk about it in this way. So neptic basically means that it's watchfulness, uh, inner stillness. It's, uh, it's, it's all about the, the living the inner life you know, which kind of got lost in the West, especially in modern times. That's where you have people like Thomas Merton and stuff that are going out, you know, to try to find Eastern uh, ways of meditation and things like this and uh, grabbing from different traditions, trying to find this uh, lost tradition of diving within oneself, watching oneself, purifying oneself through prayer and, um, and silence and watchfulness. So... That's basically um, what it means. Any any other questions? Yeah. Uh, two uh, kind of unrelated questions in the book. They're probably in some ways too. Uh, they might get into issues that are too big to completely answer. But if you just point me in a direction, <clears throat> one is within the Catholic Church. They have the Byzantine Catholics and the Eastern Catholics mm -hmm. that seem to have our theology, mm -hmm. and then. The Latins are elsewhere, so I'm just curious how they, just in general, how they uh, approach that. 
And the, the, uh, the second question is um, uh, for us, the toll houses versus purgatory. Uh -huh. which somehow in my mind, it's a bit similar, but I, I, mean, I know they're incredibly different, but I'm just trying in some way to put them in the appropriate yeah. typology or category. So the first question I'm going to defer to, 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 to Scott because he was Byzantine Catholic at some point. So do they confess purgatory? That's, that's a, a tough one because um, when I started, I was Roman Catholic before the Vatican II. And then uh, in 1970, I was going to the Byzantine Catholic Church. They used the creed with filial way, mm -hmm. confessionals in their church. Um, women prayed the rosary in the morning because a lot of them were Latin right married to Byzantine Catholics. Okay. So it was a real mix. And uh -huh. about six, seven years later, uh, Pope Paul VI said, all you Eastern, go back to your traditions. And the priest there was a Franciscan, who had biritual faculties, so he could say it in Slavonic. I learned it in Slavonic and, and uh, English. He was back and forth. And he closed the confessionals. You confess like we do now. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, he introduced Vespers again. Mm -hmm. He put the liturgies back in the liturgy. It was just like, they, they got more and more Latinized. Okay, so by the time we got there, got married, got married there in 1979, my kids, one, two, three, four of them were baptized there. Four of them were baptized there. And then we got a new bishop from, uh, from Pittsburgh. And he was horrified that three-year-olds were going up to receiving communion. You know, yeah. He went back to the... So you're always going back and forth. So you can yeah. go to a Byzantine Catholic Church today and say, wow, that's very orthodox. I know there's one in El Segundo. That was where we had a lot of our orthodox tra uh, training. Because if you walk in there, you'd say, this is a Russian Orthodox Church. Icons. He, and I asked him, I kind of... I told you this story, I think, about yeah. the... Immaculate Conception, that the Catholic Church on December 8th. And um, I said, Father, um, next week is December 8th, we're going to have, this is at the Byzantine Catholic Church, the Russian Greek Catholic Church. They're under the Pope, they're under the authority of Newton and Melchite Greek Catholics, mm -hmm. which is the Catholic version of the Antiochians. Yeah. We were there for three years, too. So, just briefly, my, my path went from from uh, Roman Catholic, pre-Vatican II, Byzantine Catholic, to Melchite Greek Catholic, back to the Roman Catholic, because I was so fed up with it. I, everywhere it was like different, you know. But anyway, by, by seven years later, um, my point, they were, um, what oh, you make a conception. So I asked, uh, I asked the priest down there, I said, so Father, I mean, he did everything like you would do, same service books, everything. Yeah. And in the Slavonic tra tradition, so it was really, really, I learned a lot. I said, you're going to have a Mac conception next Wednesday on the 8th. He looks at me and he says, Scott, that's a, that's a Western dogma. We don't believe, we don't teach that here. I says, how can we be Catholic? We're Catholic under the Pope. We don't accept that. We don't accept this. Which is it? Yeah. Well, we're like, a, like, a, yeah. like a bridge with one foot on either side. Yeah. And that was kind of a turning point where I said, I'm not Catholic because I don't believe in papal fallibility number one that it took 1,870 years to get to. Yeah. Immaculate Conception yeah. was then, and the year before I was born was the dogma of the, uh, the Assumption. Yeah, yeah so it... The, 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 the three, three fable dogmas. It, it, that, it, it sounds so... Like, that sounds like purgatory. <laughs> yeah, 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 that he was in, yeah. <laughs> so, so, it's, so, it, so it's always... It, it, and, and 
for some of the people that are, you know, that I've talked to and maybe listening, so forgive me uh, later on the recordings, but that this, that this is the main kind of, this is one of the, um, not the, maybe not the main, but one of the great um, kind of um, upsetting things is that it depends on who your priest is and who your bishop is. So if you're, if you're, if you're um, Byzantine Catholic, you might have a very uh, Orthodox-like priest and a very Orthodox-like bishop. But maybe next year you get somebody else that transfers in who's very Latin. And so things change again. So it depends on what you hold up, what you teach. It depends on the person that's kind of, um, that's kind of in charge. You, know? you can be at one that says the filioque in the, in, the, in the creed, and another one doesn't say the filioque in the creed. You know? um, so, it, so it all depends. And then um, what was your second question? Oh, yeah. I just want to say what you just said was the most bonkers thing I've heard in my entire life. What? Oh, that, that it can that switch, flip-flop? I mean, that's, that's bonkers. It's it is because... It is because what I told... What, you know, when I tell people is that at the end of the day, you're still in communion with somebody who preaches heresy. At the end of the day. You know, if you don't... If you don't, if you don't confess the filioque every Sunday in your church... Somewhere up the chain, somebody does. And so you're unequally yoked with heresy, and you can't have, you know, dwell, light can't dwell in darkness. It has to be one or the other, you know. Christ is not schizophrenic. The Holy Trinity is not schizophrenic. So there's only one correct theology and one doctrine, you know, of the faith. You know, we can't, you can't be married to somebody who, you know, uh, you know, communing with somebody who, com- who, who confesses something totally different, totally different understanding of the Trinity. You know, so, that, so yes, it's bonkers. Um, to answer your second question on the, on, on the difference between the purgatory and the toll houses, we talked about the toll houses a little bit last week. I, th- I think it was last week um, or the week before. But um, basically, the toll houses, just to sum them up, you know, to put them in kind of a... Um, just a really succinct way is that they're, they're, they're basically the, the demon's last attempt to try to snatch souls before they enter paradise. It's what St. Paul describes as the, 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 the powers and the principalities in the air, right? That souls pass through. And so this is the last attempt for demons to try to um, bring a soul down into down into Hades. Now, um, the those that are that are purified, demons have no um, control over souls. The only way that control is given to demons over souls, if that is that if a person allows demons to control them during this life through their passions, because that is kind of this uh, weird inversion of free will when we use it in the wrong way. So the toll houses are not a purifying experience. The toll houses are um, a last-ditch effort of the demonic powers to take souls that they think uh, belong to them. You know, and even in the stories of the saints, uh, the, the the righteous that don't have certain sins, demons will try to accuse them of sins they didn't even commit. Um, to try to try to snatch them right away from their guardian angels or whatever. So, toll houses are not a purifying event. 
there a, uh, an event that um, the soul goes through, and not every soul exactly the same way, um, and not even every soul all the time. Many times the righteous descend directly into heaven without having to pass through um, the toll houses. But nevertheless, we have to be um, conscious that this trial does exist and that there is a definite pattern within the services of the churches, the patristic tradition of the church, and the lives of the saints. There is a, a definite pattern that after death, demons and angels make a struggle um, to seize the soul, you know, to seize the soul. So. What? Sounds like we need a good prayer to the guardian yes, angel. Yes, there is a canon to your guardian angel. Yeah, it's in the HTM book, the, the Great Horologion, and it's in the um, the blue um, HTM book, the small prayer book, the canon of the guardian angels in both of those places. It's an absolutely beautiful canon to read. Yes, be on good terms with your guardian angel. And there's references to the toll houses in these canons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. When you were talking, you were talking kind of towards the last page of the of tonight's uh, mm-hmm. teaching. I think it says Saint Simeon. Uh, I believe you're talking about doing post communion prayers throughout the receiving. Yeah. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. Um, Saint Simeon, the translator. Yeah, it's his, it's his prayer in um, Thanksgiving for communion. I have the choir read that now all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then, my um, background is Roman Catholic, too. I'm not a theologian in any way. But the, the, I've heard um, the created versus uncreated thing we mentioned before. So tonight's teaching kind of helped clarify that some. Uh-huh. Um, in my own head, as a former Roman Catholic, maybe you can identify perhaps what needs to be shifted. Um, I was When I was being exposed to the, to, uh, the idea of through spiritual disciplines or through um, spiritual prayer techniques, if I can use a better word for it, that the human will and the human will and the human soul could kind of like be brought into agreement to be open and to be receptive to the grace energies of God. But I never really thought of that as being like somehow seeking through my own willpower to somehow do something like God owes me grace for his energy because I did some sort of religious ritual. I was never really my right. intent. Mm-hmm. Although, although I did know people who thought that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so is some, of this, is some of this Eastern Western thing portion of it just simply um Perspective or terminology difference. Um, created and uncreated. So it's 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 not just a perspective of terminology. Okay. Um, 
it's a product of um, leaving, leaving divine grace in the church itself. So it becomes an experience. So what Metropolitan Harothius is saying here, which is true, is that these um, heretical doctrines that we talk about that exist in the West exist organically because this is how they begin to experience their spiritual life because it is it has divorced itself from the traditions of the fathers the apostolic tradition and the curing of the soul right and so it's not just a it's not just a way in which they you know the terminology that they use it's actually how they're how they feel they're experiencing god and how one's one experiences god you know um they're starting they're they're in a wrong starting point basically is where where it comes from um especially when the scholastic theology starts to take a hold of the church and the renaissance comes in all these kinds of things and things become very man-centered um, and um, scholastically centered instead of the experience of God that the fathers have always um, deemed as through, true theology, you know, to purify oneself through, um, through prayer, ascetical practice, discipline in the church, all these kinds of things, um, through intense spiritual battle. This is where true theology is born. But when all this stuff is lost, and it becomes a theology becomes centered on man's experience and how he perceives God in his mind without clearing the heart. Then these things just become organic. Um, the way that they um, will talk about the afterlife or anything like that, and you see it in this, especially in the way in which purgatory develops. Right, it be, develops into this very. Um, market-based system for the soul you know it's very earthly you know has a very earthly model you know you pay a little bit somebody receives you know uh, uh, that that payment you know in the next life or whatever it becomes very earthly the model becomes very earthly you know well for me i mean i, I still my own mind say there's okay there's, there's, there's energy it's uncreated it's a portion of just god's essence or or the flow of love between members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity? So instead, so don't confuse yourself too much. Just simply think of it on these terms that the fathers have boiled it down to or put it you know, allegorically for us to understand. That the Son is God's, just like God's essence. We can never get close to it or participate in it. Okay. It is something beyond our comprehension, our experience. We'd be obliterated. <clears throat> His energy is like the, the rays of the sun. They, stare, they still carry on the person of the sun, if you will, because the energy cannot exist without the person. They, so you still participate in the sun, but you do not participate in the essence of the sun, but its energies. And it's the same that we participate in God. We cannot participate in his essence, but we can participate in his, his energies. And these energies are not created. They're uncreated. They're part of him. They're his person. So when uh, saints are filled with divine light, when we partake of Holy Communion, we are partaking in the direct energy of God. Right. It is not created so that we participate in him through a created way. 
It's through direct contact. Okay. Right? Oh, this is another thing, too, the Roman Catholic really didn't discuss so much God's energies as God's grace. Okay? So, I'll be quiet if I'm going to go off on a side tangent at this point, but the lesson's really good. I'm going to have to reflect some, you know, maybe sure. work more. Well, if you have any questions afterwards, just let me know. But basically, we don't believe that grace is created. Okay. It's, it's God's, God's uncreated energy is His grace. Right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it is truly meet to bless the Theotokos, ever-blessed and all-blameless, and Mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who without corruption gave His birth to God the Word, and are truly Theotokos, thee to be magnified. May the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.